This heated debate around the natural way of life misses the main point. Ever since the cognitive revolution, there hasn't been a single natural way of life. There are only cultural choices from among a bewildering palette of possibilities. Welcome to The One Up Project. Money is fuel that that allows you to do things. It doesn't need to be taboo. What you don't want to do is wake up at 65 realising you did something you hated and have regret. Go and find people who will give you advice for nothing. This is a space for personal growth and money chat with new perspectives every Monday. This bit of content, listening to this, is going to be a small little breadcrumb of something that makes them think a little bit differently. For all the things we were never taught but should have been. At the end of the day, the most important person is yourself. And if you're not happy with your own choices, then you're never going to be happy. A super quick note before we get into this episode where I come in guns blazing, full energy, full noise because this episode is quite heavy, it's quite intense and I'm also just excited to be learning about these topics and starting to gain a better understanding of world history, my own ignorance and so much within that. But I want to give a bit of a trigger warning because this episode is so heavy. We talk about sexual abuse and then aside from that there's also just many themes of religion how it came to be racism sexism homophobia just a lot like we go through a lot in this episode and if those topics could be too heavy for you in any way then I would suggest maybe not listening to this part because it is pretty much the entire episode but I do hope you enjoy and I cannot wait to talk to you about it soon. Kia ora everyone, welcome back to another episode of The One Up Project and part two of our summary slash review slash assessment of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. In the first episode, I went over what the book's about, when it was written, the author, Uh, and everything like that and then I also started going through the different revolutions that have happened within history and their impact on society now so that's the cognitive revolution the agricultural revolution and the industrial revolution so much was talked about in that episode and I would encourage you to go and listen to that before you listen to this one because it's going to they're going to build off one another but in this episode we talk more about what is life like now and what will it be like into the future and Once again, I could not possibly cover every single point, not only in the book, but also that I found interesting in these two episodes, even though they're both going to be like 45 minutes long and I'm going to be recording for almost three hours. uh, I still could not talk about everything that I found that was interesting. And I think as time develops, and this always happens with anything I learn about, I will strengthen certain parts of that knowledge in various other discussions and I'll probably come to different conclusions than what I've come to within both of these episodes. I mean, my perspective, I leave my perspective open to be shaped every single day of my life and it's completely okay if anything I said in that previous video is something I disagree with uh, tomorrow. But I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts no matter what. I'm just really looking forward to discussing this with you and I think without further ado, I can't believe I just said that, but let's let's jump into it. The unification of humankind. This refers to the process where Homo sapiens, our human species, gradually evolved from these scattered small scale groups into a globally interconnected civilization. So we used to be these people 
these hunter-gatherers who existed in small groups, moved from place to place, ate a diverse range of you know nutrients and, and meat and all of those kinds of things. And then we sort of moved into the agricultural revolution where we started being farmers and we started settling in, in different places, still always in quite small groups, right? So we're talking like hundreds to thousands of people. Now we live in cities of millions of people. And this part of the book is basically just covering how we moved from those small scale groups into what we live like today. This is such an interesting part of the book because I really see it as the start of when things really ramped up. And if you think about, you know, these revolutions I've been talking about, you know, the cognitive revolution was 100,000 years ago. um, The agricultural revolution was 70,000 years ago. The modern kind of version of where we are now in the scientific revolution hasn't been around for that long. Definitely not in the lengths of time that we saw those previous revolutions in. And so we're really in the beginning of what is a new phase of life. I thought about this concept of the globalization of communication uh, just recently. You know, once we were living in small groups, now we're in large groups. But not only are we living in those large groups physically, but we can actually contact and be virtually a part of groups worldwide, globally. Like distance is no matter anymore when you've got computers and technology. But beyond that, the chapter was mostly about the enhancements of those shared beliefs that separated us from animals to begin with, as we spoke about, the the development of different religions and belief systems. Religion has always been an interesting concept to me in general. I was never raised religious. I would say that I'm spiritual maybe in many senses, uh, not just across any particular religion but across all different types of spirituality and that was discussed quite heavily in this book obviously because it has had a massive massive impact on so many people around the world today and throughout history. It also talks about the rise of monotheistic religions this is the belief that there is only one god so we're thinking about religions like christianity or islam Uh, the opposite to this is polytheistic religions which are the belief of multiple or in multiple gods so that's buddhism for example it's very clear to me at least this is my perspective from the book that throughout history religion has done two things for humanity united it and divided it i think united it actually more so than divided it because without people's trust and belief in these ideologies groups of humans wouldn't have flourished in the way that they did and so as we were talking about in the beginning we needed these structures to unite us to bring us together to help us flourish as large groups of people and I think as the world grows even bigger and we have this global communication people from who have different religions they started to communicate and suddenly that shared belief you have with everyone in your city isn't the shared belief of everyone in that other city. And one thing that was created to bring all of these people together for something bigger, for a bigger purpose, starts to become divisive. And so when you mix that with the scientific revolution that we're just about to talk about, shit gets wild. Because then we're comparing concepts of religion with biology. When they're not really comparable, because they're two 
two completely separate things. But science has had a profound impact on our understanding of what the world is, what it's like. It's led to us thinking that there are ways things should be or shouldn't be. And religion is very similar in that sense. But these advancements have challenged more traditional beliefs and paved the way for a new kind of understanding as well. And I think with that unification of humankind, with that globalization, you have so many conflicting perspectives and perspectives that are so deep rooted in the origins of someone's culture, of someone's soul, uh, that that's when things become controversial, right? And so we're going to talk about this a little bit more soon. But first I want to touch on that scientific revolution. And let's start with a little story. And this story is about the discovery of America. So there was something very clearly that separated European imperialism with many other projects in history and empires in history. So the thing is that a lot of other empires tended to assume that they already understood the world and this was reflected in in the way they tried to conquer other nations or areas. Europeans set out to obtain new information about things that they hoped would progress society. You see how that's a theme coming through in so much of these things? We do, everything we do, it comes, so much of it comes back to we want to progress society. We have initially good intentions I suppose in so many ways they wanted to obtain a knowledge alongside conquering colonizing and ruining the lives of many people often on these boats when they would go exploring when they would go on these expeditions they took on board scientists who didn't want to fight but they wanted to make scientific discoveries alongside those people who were going to invade uh, the various territories This is actually how the study of religion, linguistics and botany began Uh, in Egypt. They called it Egyptology because Napoleon invaded Egypt in 1798 and he took 165 scholars with him on that journey. So within that, on that journey, that's when they founded this new discipline of Egyptology. And so you can see how many of these scientific breakthroughs or just the start of, of a scientific journey happened through this original intent to settle curiosities and find out more about things they didn't know about. The Europeans were very drawn to fill in the blank spots in comparison to a lot of other groups that were trying to com- conquer other territories. And I think that's that's what led to them being so prolific in their colonization of so many different places was that their assumption that they didn't have all the answers, and but they wanted them, led them to conquer so many places that other people didn't. Fun fact is that a mapmaker named America after who they thought discovered it. I don't think, obviously, there were already people living in America, so it was technically already discovered. But uh, an Italian man named Amarigo Vespucci, let's, I probably butchered that, but he discovered it, so... So this map maker thought, and then that's why we called it. That's why we call it America. And the a line in the book is quite interesting. It says there is poetic justice in the fact that a quarter of the world and two of its seven continents are named after a little-known Italian whose sole claim to fame is that he had the courage to say, "We don't know." And for all the horrific things that we're about to talk about soon in regards to the Europeans' impact on the world, assuming that we know nothing and that everyone else 
knows nothing as well is a way to communicate better, is a way to stay curious over judgmental and it's a way to find out so much more than we know now and I think well I would have thought that would only lead to positive progress but we will find out if that is the case in a second. So of course uh, as we all know the European empires, the various empires I suppose within Europe went through much of the world and took over many territories. One lasting example that that really speaks to how much you could get away with without technology was the Europeans went into somewhere in South America came on the shores the people who lived there were like oh who are these aliens and then they were like we come in peace whatever okay this is obviously not what happened and then but you know what I'm saying and they went to the leader and they said yep we're here to help you and then they just kidnapped him for however long and just started leading that society and then they just eventually colonized it which they had just done to the city or the town or the country up the coast a little bit but because there was no quick method of communication there was not enough time for them to be to know about it and I think these were Spanish conquerors and I never understood why a lot of South America speaks Spanish how colonization impacted so many different parts of the world um of course, like I, I knew it did, but beyond it did, I didn't know anything. And this is a really great book to add that context. Something else spoken about, which is a bit of a random throw-in for kind of this section of the book we're at, but I think it's really important, was how racism starts and I suppose how all discrimination of any kind starts and how it's a self-perpetuating cycle, which is a bit of a pessimistic uh view to have on it it's a bit of a sad view because it kind of makes you think okay is there really any solution to this without somehow improving the subconscious bias of large majorities within the world but I also think it's a reality and it could speak to how we can create better solutions for these problems that might look different to the way we're doing things now so this book describes Uh, racism is the vicious circle a chance historical event so racism let's say in America especially happened as a result of a chance historical event now that chance historical event was the Atlantic slave trade so this is where Europeans pulled human beings out of Africa across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas to be slaves. Of course, we can't really speak to the intentions of anyone at this time, uh, although I guess some actions do reflect intent. But this book sort of holds the perception that the Atlantic slave trade didn't stem from hatred towards Africans. It was just fueled by an indifference to them, which definitely doesn't make it better at all or any different, but... It's important because that chance historical event fueled by indifference then created discrimination and created hatred. And now it's a it's a reality that so many people of color have to live with as a result of something born out of indifference, born out of resource. You know, the Europeans had this resource and the Africans didn't. And that's ultimately just a really sad Thing. So the cycle starts with the chance historical event being the Atlantic slave trade and then the white control of blacks is, is how this 
book has said it, that control led to discriminatory discriminatory laws, right? Because these people were then branded as the slaves. They were branded as that thing from the start as a result of this historical event. So from discriminatory laws, we go to poverty and lack of education amongst those people of colour. So because they've been discriminated against from the start, that then puts them on the back foot from a, from every angle, from literally every angle. And that leads to cultural prejudices. This is the part, I suppose, that we're living in, right? These initial discriminatory laws led to an initial poverty and lack of education amongst people of colour, which then led to cultural prejudices. These cultural prejudices are then they then feed back into the cycle, creating discriminatory discriminatory laws, and then again poverty and lack of education. That doesn't mean discriminatory laws like a person of color can't do this and a white person can, because many of those laws have been completely eradicated. Now I'm just talking about the ones built out of unconscious bias, laws that impact a certain group of people one way and a certain group of people in a different way as a result of those initial cultural prejudices. And so uh, when we talk about equity over equality, that's why that's why people of colour need support in many areas that a white person doesn't because they don't carry the same cultural prejudices as a person of colour. So the equity is to... Makeup seems like a weak phrase, but to fill the gap between their access to resource and a white person's access to resource from a psychological point of view. But unfortunately, this cycle, as long as those cultural prejudices aren't axed, this cycle will continue. And it reminds me a lot of an episode I did recently with Abbas Nazari, who was the asylum seeker from Afghanistan to New Zealand. And we spoke about this. We spoke about how the way we communicate someone's cultural prejudices is really important to helping them remove those prejudices. So going up to someone and saying, you're a racist, you're this, you're that, and expecting them to change is not an effective method of communication. Is it right that people have to make their message, make themselves more approachable for the sake of the person who created the discrimination and the prejudice in the first place? No, it's not right. It's wrong in more ways than I could ever articulate. But for so many people, the reality is that the prejudices, not just within racism, but so many other issues, are beyond deep-rooted generationally. And the way we communicate is crucial to the success of removing that discrimination or that prejudice. And this is also a reality when it comes to people not having money. Uh, For example, you know, back in the day, you know, historically, there were people who were peasants, right? And they didn't have any money or resource and As a result, they were looked down on and they were less of a human. They were less in society because they didn't have this resource. They didn't have money. And as a result, there were discriminatory laws against them. You know, people, 
peasants could do this and the upper class could do that. And then they had poverty, lack of resources as a result, and then there are cultural prejudices, and this goes around. And all of this still exists. I mean, the racism, obviously. But the money side of things, definitely as well. And then that feeds into why so many people don't want to talk about money because they're scared and they're ashamed and we still feel this pressure. This uh, this quote is also quite interesting. It says, Most socio-political hierarchies lack a logical or biological basis. They're nothing but the perpetuation of chance events supported by myths. If the world was led by biology, I think we would live in a very different world in so many ways. If you're interested in the development of societal issues that work against or discriminate people of colour or marginalised communities, this may be a good book for you to look at as well because this bit I found extremely interesting, definitely added to my knowledge as well. This also fed into women's issues, which the way women have been treated over time is... I don't even know how to put it into words. I'm kind of, I don't even know how to put it into words because it was a society where women were treated as second class, again, because they are originally discriminated against for whatever reason. They weren't seen as humans. So ultimately a lot of this comes back to the dehumanization of people. They were seen as property. And the natural way of life was for women to be sold and bought as property. For example, rape was a property violation, not a human violation. So if a rape occurred, the man who raped the woman would pay the original owner of that woman, so the father of that woman or the current husband of that woman, pay money for the transfer of that property, the woman, from one man to another. You can't violate property in which you already own was basically the concept believed at this time. There's so many of those thoughts that I think still are around today and the amount of industries that have been created out of the oppression of women, I'm going to say oppression because I mean if that's not I don't even know what is. You know if you just think about the objectification of women now and how our sexuality is something to be sold and bought and used. Sex sales, as they say, marketing and all, all those things. It's still very much true. And often you hear, usually, it's men saying things like, well, if women don't want these things to happen to them or they don't want to be perceived in this way, then they just shouldn't do X thing. They shouldn't dress like this. They shouldn't say these things. And you always have women coming back on the defensive around that because there's an, a loss of control that I think, and I don't want to speak on the behalf of all women, but from my perspective, there's a lo- loss of control I think you feel when someone tries to tell you what you can and can't do with your own body, your own sexuality, your own identity. And so many women want to take back that control of themselves. And that's one way that it seems many women feel like they're doing that. Cultural expectations play a huge role in the way a woman is perceived, especially, and sexualized especially, what makes an attractive woman versus an unattractive woman plays into so many of these old beliefs, things that we've just discussed. 
And again, without that removal of those cultural prejudices, when does that stop? Without an awareness that you even have a prejudice to begin with, when does that stop? It's not just men that have that prejudice, it's women that also have that prejudice about other women. It's everyone. No one is no one is separated from cultural prejudices in any way. Men especially in so many other ways as well. A book a part of this book talks about the heated debate humans often have around the natural way of life. What's the natural way of life? A woman shouldn't be doing this. A man shouldn't be doing this. A woman shouldn't be having sex with multiple different men. It's unnatural. A man shouldn't be having sex with another man. It's unnatural. You know, and and this is often discussed. What's the natural way of life? And I love this part in the book that talks about it. It says, this heated debate around the natural way of life misses the main point. Ever since the cognitive revolution, there hasn't been a single natural way of life. There are only cultural choices from among a bewildering palette of possibilities. That just fucking hit me in the heart because one of the saddest things that I I witness, something that every time I see it, it just upsets me so much. Anytime someone is told that they can't be who they are, anytime someone doesn't feel safe to be the person they want to be or that they are, that really upsets me. Not necessarily because I've had that experience myself. I think it's because I believe that feeling a sense of belonging is so fundamentally important to the happiness of a person that if I see that happening in real life, you know, someone is being discriminated against for their sexuality, their race, their interests, anything. It is the cruelest thing that someone can do to another person. It is so cruel. And reading this quote made me so happy because it just made me think, you know what? You can do whatever the fuck you want. There's no rule. There's no textbook apart from the laws of society and religion. There's no rules as to what you can and can't do. There's just cultural restrictions and cultural choices. And look, I know we could take this mindset so far and be like, oh, well, let's just go out and start killing people and running off the road and just fucking living how we want. I, I'm not trying to be that dramatic about it to the point where society is like comp- a complete disaster. I'm just saying, if you think about this in the sense of your own life, you as an individual, there are only cultural choices. You are only restricted by the society you live in. But a psychological restriction is very difficult to get past. It's very difficult. If you can't be the person who you are with your family, with your friends, that could kill you in so many ways. If anything, reading this book really, really cemented in my mind that let people be themselves. Do you, you know? And to all of us, this is not one group of people, this is all of us, including myself, have an awareness of your biases. Have an awareness of your prejudice towards certain groups have an awareness of your own insecurity because you enacting that belief that prejudice 
that insecurity on someone else restricts them from being themselves. And I've always tried my hardest. I'm not a perfect human, but I've always tried my hardest to not let my insecurities impact someone else. So if someone's doing something that if I did that, I would be like, I would die of embarrassment or cringe or something like that. I would, I would never, or I'd try my absolute hardest not to show that person that I felt that way about that thing. Because I would never want them to think, oh, this person thinks that, so maybe I shouldn't do it. Even subconsciously. Because a lot of the time we, we might not consciously think that, but subconsciously we do. You know, you could be watching something on TV and your mum says to you like, oh my God, look at that. Look at that girl. Look at the way she's acting. She's this, that and the other derogatory term. And suddenly you've got a complex about why you shouldn't do that because that makes you XYZ derogatory term. So I think the more pa- the more powerful message here isn't actually just to live life the way you want. It's to stop putting your insecurities, your cultural restrictions, your prejudice and your bias on other people. Because as soon as you stop doing that, you'll probably stop putting it on yourself too. Don't think so much internal, think more external. Not, what am I doing to help me be the best me I can be? Go, I've got Dr. Seuss up in here. But what am I doing to help you be the best you you can be. Another quote from this book I love, culture tends to argue that it forbids only that which is unnatural. But from a biological perspective, nothing is unnatural. Whatever is possible is by definition also natural. A truly unnatural behavior, one that goes against the laws of nature, simply cannot exist. So it would need no prohibition. And it speaks about this in the context of two men having sex was the example given and saying how people often say, oh, it's just unnatural, it's just unnatural. Uh, And the author says, well, actually, if it's possible, it's natural, so so go for it. And that kind of cracked me up in the sense that I was like, well, let's just all go fucking wild then if everything's so natural. It's talking about the difference between biology and culture. And again, if biology ruled this world, we'd live in a much different world and I would actually love to see that world. Coming back to our conversation around religion as well, it says that in truth many of our concepts that surround what is natural and what is unnatural are taken from Christian theology. So a lot of theology or theological concepts uh, argue that, or not argue, but they say that each limb and organ is there to serve a purpose, right? A man and a woman work together because they have a purpose. A man and a man together, what is the purpose of that? Whereas biology says, well, technically, humans are always, we're ever-evolving creatures. There's no purpose for any one limb. In fact, every limb has multiple different purposes and it's not for us to decide what purpose is or isn't correct. So you just use your assets in the way that you want to. And with that, guys, I cannot believe it. We're going to need to do a part three. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going to leave this one here. And I'm glad we got to talk about everything we did. I hope you enjoyed it. And I, again, I'm not here to educate. This is just an opinion, just a perspective, just a recollection of what I've learned. 
more than happy to have a talk about anything if you want to. My DMs are always open. I actually do love having conversations, so please reach out if you'd like to talk. But otherwise, I will catch you in the next part, and that is when we're going to be talking about, I said it's what we were going to be talking about in this episode, but we more spoke about the scientific revolution. Next episode, we're going to be talking about more of these concepts, more about colonization, identity, authentic culture in quotation marks, what that actually is, if it still exists, and what all these cultural systems mean for society now uh, and how they're impacting us. Are we actually happier? Are we actually happier versions of ourselves or aren't we? And I can't wait to find that out with you guys. Catch you next week. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The One Up Project. If you want to find more stuff just like this, check out our other apps or follow us at The One Up Project on Instagram or TikTok. See you there.